pretend like I'm ready. I'm never ready. I'm always nervous. I'm always prepared for the worst. So I think um, I was very honest about that thing I said the other day that I get nervous every time I do this. You didn't believe How's me. How's your tummy? <laughs> it is in better tummy shape. Tummy feeling all right? It's feeling all right. okay. It's feeling okay. Good. Are you are you ready for this uh, this spicy episode today? Yeah. Is that a yes? Because you got quiet on me. Oh, I'm sorry. The other it was playing in the other window. I'm sorry. Oh my goodness. Two Jasons. It's two Jason squared. That's a nightmare. (laughs) Oh, just hush. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. So glad to have you guys here with us tonight for what should be a very spicy conversation with our returning guest, Adolf Reed Jr. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit like, subscribe, and don't forget to ring that notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. That simple pastor gesture goes a long way in the support of independent left media. Also, after the show, if you're a patron, we'll be going to the phones to take calls and hear what y'all have to say about what we discussed on the show today. Uh, For those of you that are subscribers and patrons, thank you for your continued support. That is the fuel in the engine in the TIR machine. If you'd like to wear your support, uh, then let the people know with TIR merch. And who else can describe the merchandise that we have here at TIR better than the faceless voice of reason, show producer extraordinaire m2 song hello hello everyone for our merch we've got snapbacks snapping back we've got let's see okay we've got mugs we've got a t-shirt with pascal smiling face on it we have a mouse pad with with pascal smiling face on it and another mug again with pascal smiling face on it we You're welcome. decided to double down on Pascal. We we heard the people. The people said so they important. wanted more Pascal. And we said, we're going to give you Pascal. But we're going to give you um, a smiling Pascal, a more docile Uncle Benish Pascal. Uncle Benish. And that's, and that's, that's a, what you get. 
that's a that's an adjective. Just kidding. It's more like Benson. <laughs> no one watching the show knows who Robert Guillaume or what Benson is. I love Benson. <laughs> <laughs> he is my homie, my dog. He is my co-host. He is the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Peace and greetings, M. Toussaint. Hello. Pascal, did you watch Benson as a young person? Absolutely. You know, what's interesting thing about Benson, my father said about Robert Guillaume. That he was Haitian? No, he didn't say that. (laughs) Okay. My father said that Robert Guillaume is the only actor he believed was qualified to play the role of Toussaint Louverture because he actually looked like him. Oh. Yeah, that's true. That's Ooh. true. Robert Guillaume is kind of a... I would, you know, if we could aid off in the champagne real quick, I just want to know what he thought about Guillaume because he had some acting chops. And uh, in Derek Bell, that, that uh, I think one of the Hudlin brothers for HBO did a uh, a series called Cosmic Slop which was kind of supposed to be a black uh Twilight Zone and they opened that show we've played it on this show several times the um the Derek Bell Race Traders he actually made a uh, a short if you will based off the Race Traders story and uh Robert Guillaume played the black character and uh just really brought that uh, episode to life so vividly remember it mm-hmm. I, I I find it Good episode as a as a conversation starter. It's one of those those shows. Well, there's a lot of conversation you can have about Derek Bell. <laughs> <laughs> we're just we're just talking race traders. We're not talking that dreaded CRT. Also, before we uh, before we start, I want to say thank you to all that came out to hang with some divorcees for our inaugural Kami Valentines. Ben and I plan on doing more of these impromptu events. We had a good time at the Rainbow in L.A. I saw some people asking <laughs> what kind of place it was. It is a bar and grill on the Sunset mm-hmm. Strip in Los Angeles, California. Um, I guess they thought we were at a gay club, and it is not. It's just a bar. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. Um but yeah, so we, we will be doing more stuff. We don't know exactly where we'll be, but we will give more notice. We were talking about doing something for St. Patrick's Day. I definitely want to do something where there weren't a lot of white people, so we'd probably be celebrating it in San Isidro. <laughs> no white okay. So I have to do that. Now, before we bring in our guest... In this current political moment where there are no real strong left organizations or movements, nostalgia for the new left of the 60s and black power fetishism are at the forefront of the minds of this aspiring left of the 21st century. But did the Panthers really have the numbers and the potential to liberate us? Is simply blaming everything on state intervention an easy out to a complicated question? Were there limitations with the civil rights movement that prevented it from doing more? 
from his recent article on Bayard Rustin and Nonsite. Rustin saw politics through a concrete strategic lens, which provided a perspective that has become increasingly remote from both academic and activist experience. Indeed, as demonstrated in the essay selected here, he explicitly rejected the moralistic discourse that he saw undergirding much of black power and new left politics, as well as the tendency to reduce the sources of inequality to psychological factors like prejudice, discrimination, or generic racism. He was committed to a vision of a just society that hinged on a pursuit of broad economic equality, and he was convinced, as most popular front-era black radicals were, that advancing towards economic equality in general was essential for black Americans, both because black Americans were predominantly in the working class and because continued improvement for blacks required being part of a broad political coalition centered on improving the lives and economic security of all working people. He also understood that realizing such an egalitarian agenda under American capitalism would require the efforts of a different sort of movement, a pop, a popularly based institutional politics, and that generating that movement would require a strategic and prog programmatic shift from the watershed moment of 1965. In one of his most controversial essays from Protest to Politics, The Future of the Civil Rights uh, Movement, Rustin argued that the legislative victories of 1964 and, in anticipation, 65, effectively fulfilled the goals of the Civil Rights Movement and that the movement, which he suggested probably warranted a new name, needed to reorient towards pursuit of an agenda centered on broad economic redistribution. He reiterates that argument in 1967, uh, in his 1967 address, Firebombs or Freedom Budget, reproduced here, in which he stumps for the Freedom Budget for All Americans that A. Philip Randolph Institute had released the year before. In the 1967 address, he asserts, I think before I talk about the Freedom Budget, it is necessary for us to make some analysis of where we are now because everybody is writing great and long articles about prejudice and discrimination in the United States as if we were back in 55 or 56 or 57 or 50 or 60 or 62 or 3 or for the fact is my friends we are in a totally different period in the problem of civil rights that we have ever been in our history and practically none of the experience of the past is particularly significant now i want you to know in the present period we are dealing with practically no fundamental question in the minds of negroes which are negro problems for what negroes are interested in is decent housing decent jobs decent education and the right of participation in decision making please welcome our guest friend of show the adolf reed clap 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 <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's good to see you guys, as as always. Uh, I want to start out though by saying about Robert Guillaume. Uh, a little known fact is that his longtime partner, Faye Hauser, who also appeared, I think, in Roots Two, and in the remake of uh, of, uh, of uh, Lilies of the Field as a made-for-TV movie, was actually my college classmate. Uh, oh, at, at uh, Chapel Hill. Yeah, and my. Uh, former roommate's girlfriend, uh, so small world. Uh, but, but, but I also say though, that, that that quote that you just read from the firebombs or freedom budget essay is like, it's almost like the subsequent 
half century plus of black political life or what we understand as black politics has been largely about trying to deny the reality of every point that Rustin made, made, made in that piece. Uh, and, and it's interesting in that regard too, that for so much of contemporary black political discourse and even, you know, uh, cultural production, it's like history stopped before 1965, right? I yeah. mean, that, that, right? I mean, like everything that, that, that we're supposed to refer to, to make sense of our current circumstances, drives us back to slavery or to Jim Crow or, or, or some earlier, just, uh, uh, and, and it's almost like, uh, the thrust of what we think of as, uh, black political or black politics, at this point, uh, is all about, um, obscuring, um, the significance of the sequelae of the Voting Rights Act and institutionalization, uh, and incorporation of, of black people into, as, um, both as vigils and as a uh, um, strata mm -hmm. uh, I mean, in the country. I had read your piece probably around the time it came out uh, mm -hmm. on the suggestion of Pascal Robert and then revisited it again um, a few weeks back when I uh, was writing a piece for Sublation called Is the Contemporary Left uh, a Lifestyle Brand? Mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> between, I like go ahead. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, definitely send it to you. But I definitely got a lot of inspiration from what you were, were writing in, in this non-site piece, as well as uh, Paul Prescott had sent me some uh, some of Ad uh, Adolf's, some of uh, Rustin's writing as well, which, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and I think I even might, might have quoted some of it in the in that piece. I can't remember. Maybe it, even, it got edited out, but uh, I know Pascal is ready to uh, drop some some questions. He is prepared. Okay. Sounds good. Well, you know, I really, I, I, uh, I really appreciated your piece. It was, uh, it was very, very, um, you threw some haymakers in that one. You threw some haymakers in that piece. It was, it took me back to vintage Adolf Reed of the uh, 1990s class huh. notes because you, uh, you spared, you spared no, uh, no, no, no victims to your pen in terms of getting at your point. The question I want to ask you is that, I don't know if you're aware of this, Michelle and Barack Obama are sponsoring a uh, film adaptation on the life of Bayard Rustin for Netflix. Yeah, for Netflix. yeah I've heard uh, about it. And, and uh, as you probably know, based on both of our positions on the Obamas, anything hmm. that they do for any kind of reason would immediately bring suspicion. Particularly, right. right now, we're gonna. Yeah, have you heard anything about the rest of the film, or, or what it focuses on about Rustin? I haven't heard anything about the film. I haven't even seen a trailer. I don't even think there's a trailer released yet. Right. I think they have named who the actor is playing Rustin, mm -hmm. but I was very circumspect with the fact that the Obamas were choosing Rustin as their uh, centerpiece. To do right. a film on for Netflix, right? But in in retrospect, and we do know about the tragic ending of of of, of Bayard Rustin's politics. Right. I'd like yep. to I'd like for you to explain mm 
what at this particular particular contemporary moment caused you to reflect on Rustin as the avatar of this piece in the moment that we are right now? Well, it's kind of prosaic, man. I mean, um, Nonsite had already decided to do a special uh, where we published um, several of Rustin's less well-known essays that are, that are pretty powerful. Uh, and Preston Smith's fine piece on Black Clover Incorporation prior to 1965 was also going to be a part of that issue, um, along with uh, uh, Todd, Todd Cronin's uh, um, uh, a symposium around Todd, Todd Cronin's new book, Red Aesthetics. And I just... Uh, you know, what happened actually um, was I wrote an email to, to Ray and also Todd um, on um, some of my, just reflection on my personal in, engagement with the BPP in, in the early 70s. And they both thought it would be good for me to, to expand that and uh, you know, to write it up. Uh, and it turned out that it worked for for a non-site. I mean, Rustin has been an interesting figure because that's an. But that mid 1960s moment, uh, you know, is an interesting moment. Uh, and look, like everybody else, as a young radical, I was not a fan of Bayard Rustin in, in 1965. I mean, I think I've mentioned on your podcast before that I came into the movement via Black Power, right? Um, as a 19-year-old. Um, so I was primed to reject Rustin as an Uncle Tom, whatever else. Um, but why it's important to keep paying attention as as history keeps evolving, right? Um, and um, and in a lot of ways, so um, I mean, I'll grant that Rustin may well have um, been too optimistic about the potential for development of social democratic coalition that 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 he wanted at, at at the time i don't know whether he was or not because the point is that the black power stuff cut, cut into that effort from from one end and the war cut into it from another end right or the war and 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 and, and, and uh, uh and backlash i guess you could say um but i think it's useful for us to reflect on on the assessments of, that people like Rustin made of, of the movement at, at that point, uh, because of the first quote that Jason read from, from, from my essay, that uh, the Rustin was a guy whose politics was always rooted in concrete strategy and was goal-oriented. And, and his perspective, I mean, I don't believe in prescience, but the perspective that he had on many of the tendencies in the early and mid mid 60s even the late 60s uh, because of the way that it was grounded in concrete practice and, and uh, strategic objectives uh um helped him understand the limits of what uh, a lot of people are jumping up and down uh, and getting happy about it is and i think is it, oh sorry no, I was going to say, is it immature for us to to try to throw Rustin out 
Is it is it uh, because of his uh, informant at the end of his life where he gets a little more right wing and and definitely right. becomes an informant? Is it is it uh, wrong for us to throw the the man out entirely? Well, oh, well, it's absolutely wrong to throw the man out because in the first place you shouldn't be looking at the damn man anyway, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's but the sense in which we are all political actors trying to make the world that we're in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the problems that we have is um, the tendency to want to find somebody to revere, right? Like if we were, mm-hmm. you know, just listen to Rustin or if we just listen to Martin Delaney or if we just listen to Pygmy Arkham, right? Whatever. I mean, <laughs> um, but so, uh, so I think it's wrong and romance as for being immature. Um, I would say that, except. I know a lot of lefties from my cohort, even some older than I am, who, whose, whose views about Rustin and Rustin's arguments froze in 1964. And so it's, um, so, so unless it's an, a kind of immaturity that reflects going into second childhood, right, to something more, uh, uh, more problematic going on that, that uh, the just being immature, but I think yeah, I think it's politically uh, counterproductive and uh, you know, dilettante, basically, right? I mean, is Rustin speaking to a bit of immaturity in his in his essays in this? I think it's 1970 where he talks about yeah. you know, hey, you guys love the Black Panthers. There's only a couple thousand of them, right? Oh man, yeah. I mean that essay in particular, like I'd never seen that one before. Uh, and actually, you know what? That's the essay. That prompted me to write the email mm-hmm. because Toure will tell you that for as long as he can remember, he's he's heard me saying that by 1970, probably half, half the Black Panthers were cops, right, or thugs mm-hmm. or cops and thugs, and then to see Rustin saying the same thing in the same year, yeah. and I wasn't a Rustin fan at that point either, right? But I was somebody who had to deal with Panthers on the ground mm-hmm. or. Panthers, right? I'm out of my own work, uh, and, and and I've had that problem with them. I mean, and it, it's it, it it was a, a so, so Cedric Johnson. I'll give him a plug um, because it's a great essay. Um, a dude, I think it was Wisconsin or somewhere, uh, maybe Canada, um, wrote a critique of Preston's. Oh, sorry, of Cedric's, the Panthers can't save us essay a guy named Vernon that came out in uh, Catalyst. And Cedric just showed me the galleys of his response, which are great. Uh, he, uh, he, he makes all the points that everyone needs to make at, at this particular juncture that, that we're at now. And I suggest all of your readers find that piece when it comes out. Uh, but I mention that because I've, I've said to Cedric before, too, yeah, my nose is itching, man, like, and I haven't been doing cocaine. <laughs> So you know. <laughs> no, but I realize it must look like. Yeah, um, a little bit. A little yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, what I've mentioned a second before, uh, that I've always appreciated the nuance that he can bring to discussing the Panthers. And I agree with every bit of it. Uh, and I think it's partly because of my own history with them and but probably more so 
you know, the half century in, in between of hearing so many different versions of the, if the, if, if police hadn't killed the Black Panthers, then we'd be free now. That, that, that I heart they have the, that I tend to focus more acting um, the uh, um, overstatement that then I've given them props. But, but the fact is, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the Panthers, yeah, yeah, the Panthers obviously had some serious social presence in Oakland and they had some in Chicago and a few other cities around, even Philadelphia and either. But they were never the kind of force anywhere pardon me, that panther idolatry, that panther idolatry wants to make them or, or make them to have been. And frankly, especially when it comes from white people, um, you know, the panther fetishism uh, uh, you know, it really makes me think of the, anim of the Ralph Bakshi animated film, Fritz the Cat, which is uh, uh, about music. Uh, uh, um, a cat who's basically a middle-class white who gets alienated from his surroundings and wants to go find himself among the black people, basically. And I think there's a lot of And then there's the fashion show aspect of it, which was the problem even then, man. I mean, uh, um, by, by, by the early 1970s, you could tell, right, that people were appropriating a lot of this stuff as fashion, the big ass. Uh, the leather jacket, the, the beret, all kind of stood in for politics, and and it's happening again. Uh, you need only look back to whenever to whatever year that was when Beyonce's dumbass did did did, did that um, clip show in the Super Bowl. Now, Adolf, as you know about me, I spent quite a number of years writing for Black Agenda Report. And right. both of both of my mentors, right. uh, Glenn Ford and Bruce Dixon, yep. were uh, active members of the Black Panther Party. When in and a lot of came through the BPP, just like they came through a lot of sectarian organizations too. I mean, and I mean that's another important point. And and I think I make this point like in the essay. Uh, I mean, you know, nobody comes from nothing, right? Like everybody's had formative political experiences. And the Panthers opened uh, um, a lot of young, younger, and maybe not so younger people up to uh, some version of, of, of anti-capitalist politics, uh, often considered Marxist, right? Uh, and and a lot of people, or a good number of people, took that experience and went on and did other things with it. But but you know, one of the problems, and this wasn't just just with the Panthers, but uh, you know, one of the problems with the radical movements of the 60s is that the dialectic that developed between the movement organizations and the mass media was such that people who were old enough um, to be identified as stars of the movement just stopped developing politically and intellectually, right? It's almost like, um, um, like, yeah, I mean, you know how performers or actors or musicians or whatever um, can freeze themselves at, in the persona of their peak popularity, right? Um, a simple way to put it is um, Norman Desmond in the you know, Sunset 
Boulevard or Jackie Mason or I, or I can think of some other black ones, Nipsey Russell. Um, uh, and you inhabit that persona. And but, but from the standpoint of a political person, once you do that, there's no more learning going on. There's no more. Um, oh, oh yeah, I could have mentioned Angela Davis, but there's no more um, growing with experience. And most of all, there's no 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 more capacity to reflect on one's own history, right? I mean, not one's own biography, because who cares about that? But 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 the history of one's own own involvements and to reassess them critically, right? That stuff's gone. So. What happens is is you become this persona that you live in, and and, and have to protect. And in some ways, the worst people um, approach for critical reflection on the social movements of the '60s. Though it's not just true about that, but but that's what we're talking about. The worst people to approach. Or are the people whom you would think to approach because you knew about them in the newspapers, right? Because they they often have the most nostalgia to protect, right? Uh, the sense of of their own having come of age. I mean, it's really crazy, man. I mean, so many people went into politics in the '60s looking for self fulfillment, right? And I mean, I've, and I've, um, as I've often said. Uh, 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 and one of my two mottos is, is it's better to be lucky than, than good. And I was just younger enough, right, that, that I was close enough to see what was happening with Carmichael and Mark, Angela, and the rest of them, uh, Seal and Newton or whatever, and, our, and, and the older people I worked with in North Carolina who became sort of icons, Howard Fuller, for instance. Um, but... But so young that I was never anything but a foot soldier, and never thought about being anything but a foot soldier. Never had any aspirations to be anything other than a foot soldier. But so I was able to avoid the temptation. Not that anybody would have wanted to make me that anyway. But it had right. I I I, I had the resources to avoid the temptation. Uh, but but I was close enough to watch it happen. Right. Uh, and it's just weird, man. Uh, I mean, it's not what you would think, right? Like, if you come into left politics mm -hmm. from a standpoint um, and a sensibility that's more associated with the politics of the Third International, right, than, than, than with some shit called the youth movement. Uh, it's just a different orientation. Do you think that has something to be said about the boomer generation that kind of keeps these narratives afloat. Oh, um, you, you know, yeah. we've talked about it before that they kind of controlled the nostalgia market throughout the eighties and nineties and even into the early two right. thousands, you know, movies right. like Forrest Gump, um, all the way till we have now the, the movie Judas and the black Messiah, which still keeps playing yeah. on that, uh, great man of history myth, which, which kind of makes people look at the Panthers in this uh, maybe unfair light, same thing you can say about the weatherman, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's right, man. And, and, and I mean, and as like left politics has become increasingly disconnected from um, winning things, right? It it's it's become 
increasingly performative, right? Uh, and and like, I mean, I could see this a long time ago. I could see this decades ago. I mean, anybody who watched it could see it. Um, that young people were forming their understanding of the social movements of the '60s from old old newsreels and freeze frames of demonstrations or the Panthers standing out with uh, you know, on the courthouse steps in Sacramento, um, and and the images, and you see it now. But you see it with the BLM people, man. Uh, and, and but even music videos or rap. I mean, well, hip hop. Um, videos uh, the um, uh, appropriation well no miming the still photos or the newsreel footage of what radicals looked like and how they spoke and the and the pronunciamentos that they made uh, all like on a Hollywood set right um, and there's a Potemkin quality to the whole thing it's it's a yeah it's frustrating um, but there's no question that the boomers uh, have have um, um, conspired uh, to keep this going, and and showing up in a lot of perverse ways, right? So, like in 2008, right? I mean, you remember how many times we all heard versions of, "I never heard anything about Barack Obama," but my 16-year-old, 15-year-old, 18-year-old, 20-year-old came home really excited, and I just kind of fell in their their excitement because we all know that the young people should be who we take our, our, our cues from because they don't have any of the real world experience that would corrupt them. Uh, and uh, my good friend Alex Willingham said around 1990, uh, when in what one of the earlier um, eruptions of pay attention to the young people, like he observed one day, so. Does this mean we're supposed to take our political cues from a group of people who like Michael Jackson, right? Because that's what that shit came down to. Uh, but, um, but you know, I mean, uh, as the old well, I'll say one more thing about the boomers. I mean, um, when Cedric uh, did the the uh, symposium in new politics around uh, his, uh, the Panthers can't, can't save us essay, um, or won't save us essay. Uh, Kim, Kim Moody, who's a very, very smart and solid, long-term trade union-based smart Marxist activist, just wrote a response that just kind of gave vent to all of his nostalgia about having been a young man with Panthers and with one summer and how formative that that was and uh, people like uh, uh, Lewis Project, right? Were, were always attacking the likes of us for. Oh my God, that's one problem we're having. But uh, you know, was always attacking the likes of us for uh, uh, saying anything nice about Rustin, and and I believe that Kim Kim did the same thing. I mean, uh, and and it's just a wrong way to approach history. It's the wrong way to approach. The past. It's an ahistorical way to approach the past, and again, it's especially striking uh, when when it's expressed by people who are supposed to be Marxists. And I thought the one thing we're supposed to do was kind of tough-minded and uh, and analytical and uh, materialist in our approaches, uh, to make sense of the past.
But yeah, I mean, book had a lot to do with it. I'm sorry, Pascal. One of the greatest quotes that uh, Cedric Johnson exposed me to on this paradigm of particularly white leftists and their uh, fetish obsession with black radicalism is the quote that Harold Cruz puts in uh, The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, I think, where he says that they think that black people are all uh, storming the barricades ready for revolution. Right. Uh, right. Well, so um, I'll give myself a plug. Right. I'm just starting a column in, in the nation. Um, and uh, the first one should be coming out soon. And and the epigraph to it is like a, a, a companion to the Cruz quote, but from Ralph Ellison, right, uh, from the world in a joke. And 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 the sentence is something like, hey, watch out, Jack, there's people under there. Right. I mean. But yeah, it's the same thing. Uh, and Ellison goes on to talk about how, for some people, uh, just beginning a sentence with the Negro is, does, thinks, feels, whatever, is like a license to give vent to your wildest Freudian fantasies. And um, and so that's the kind of stuff that you know, back in the day, back in the time, back before my time, it, it it's kind of you know what people used to call racism. Absolutely. No, I mean, one of the things, you know, for people who don't pay enough attention to my position on that period, you know, even though having written for Barr, Black and General Report, and being, you know, mentored by Bruce and Glenn, having parents who basically were young adults in the 60s who were shaped by the international anti-colonial movements, having two uncles who studied in the Soviet Union, who was reared by people like yourself that came out of that era, one of the things that I always uh, remember talking to, to, to Bruce Dixon about was that, you know, none of y'all were really dealing with, like, people in a factory, like, working class people. It all seems like it was all, you know, I, you know, basically I made a joke about it with him one time. I said, it strikes me that, like, everyone read uh, – Franz Fernand, Wretched of the Earth, and like all had like a mental orgasm and just like blew everyone's mind or something. And it's just like, just like collapsed everyone's analysis into like everything from internal colonial theory to metaphors about third world countries. And we still see that today. And uh, I've always made the statement, even though many people who watch the show for some reason think I'm a revolutionary nationalist, maybe it's because I read, is that my favorite history of black left politics is actually the old black left of the pre-popular front and popular front and the colored farmers alliance. Right, right. Yeah. They were about dealing with working class people. Right. Yeah, no, I agree, man. And and I tell you, so well, you have another plug. Uh Todd Todd Cronin did a really great essay on Fanon and the appropriations of Fanon. Now, of course, I forget where. I think it might be in the in the Los Angeles Review of Books. I might be wrong about that, but people can find it. And what I suggest they read it. But one of the things I've thought about the Fanon thing for a long time too is that people didn't read the Wretched of the Earth. They read the chapter on spontaneity uh, and force and violence, and or, or they only read Sartre's intro, 
but they didn't read the pitfalls of national consciousness and the class and Fanon's critique of the class character of, of uh, decolonization. And it's especially bizarre now, because look how that third world stuff turned out, right? I mean, uh, 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 yeah, I mean, like, so if somebody like me, who like came through the African Liberation Support Committee and, you know, part of the Marxist takeover and all that, uh, just seeing what's, what's, what, what's happened in Angola and Mozambique, and Portuguese Guinea, it you know would be heartbreaking. Like if you you know, couldn't let yourself be kind of tough-minded about understanding what's going on, and also uh, in one of those uh, instances that, that shows that the apple doesn't always fall close to the tree. Uh, you know, Patricia Harris's, uh, I mean, Kamala Harris's father did the the most powerful critique of the black colony thesis uh, that should have put an end to that right by 1972 or, or three or whenever the, uh, what the piece came out. But see, at that point, point too, man, I, when I was already working in, in, in like, um, you know, the hybrid community development, poor people's organizing world. And so I spent a lot of time in the community development corporation world. And you can see what else stuff was going. Right, I mean, why well, you could see? Yeah, well, well, okay. So you open a, a three thousand foot, uh, I mean, square foot black supermarket, uh, and expect racial patriotism to get black people to go there instead of Kroger's, right? But the only way that that stuff could ever work would be if you had had separated nationally uh, and could try to do import substitution. But you know. It was always nothing other than black bourgeois business ideology. No, I mean, it's, it's listen, there are people today who are younger than me who are, you know, born in the 70s defending internal colonial theory. I mean, I, I, I'll be very honest with you. I've always thought it was bullshit because I was like, number one, none of you people come from a third world country that was ever been a colony. So for you right. to be perpetuating this, I was like, what is Kamala Harris and Cornell West and other, you know, you know, left academics who are getting four foundation grants, where do they live in the colony? I mean, right. because, and first of all, yeah. what exactly right. analytically, what, and how does making that metaphor yeah. analytically well, help? Yeah, no, uh, uh, no, it doesn't do anything for us at all, man. It's crazy. And, and, and I mean, uh, I don't want to get myself in trouble, so I guess I'll put it this way, but when I hear that, that stuff now, like my first reaction is inward, please. I mean, because it's just foolish. And people say, but see, this is another thing that happens when politics gets disconnected from strategic goals or popular uh, what I mean, strategic goals. Because the people doing this stuff have strategic goals, but, but they're careerist, right? Um, but, but once that happens, like you, you can just say stuff because it feels good. It makes you feel good about yourself, right? And and uh, and and if if you're really a droid, that can help you get on MSNBC, or you can get you know two hundred fifty thousand dollar grant from some kind of white liberal right. foundation. Oh man, what's wrong with Pascal? You would take the money. You would take huh? the grant money, Pascal. What'd you say? I said you would take the grant money. I'd probably take it, but I would at least I would probably get the grant money. 
Would you would you try to be Robin Hood with it? Nah, man. I would <laughs> <laughs> no, just rims. This is a statement. This is a statement I made on this show. And I'll be very honest with you. Like, as much as many people could misstrew my politics as being quote revolutionary nationalists. If I was groomed by revolutionary nationalists, I have uncles who were literally, literally Marxist-Leninists who studied in the Soviet Union. I have family members who wanted to, you know, my father was literally sponsoring a coup to overthrow Baby Doc. I mean, like, you know, this, this is, I've been around this kind of politics. The thing that's always been interesting to me is that there's a whole cadre of people who has never been around that politics who mentally are still stuck in 1972 and all wanted to confront why that pot why that politics failed in 1972 besides the fact of saying well co COINTELPRO got us yeah that's why yeah. i asked that question in the beginning and i want to i want to kind of focus on that question for for one second here uh adolf is it is that somewhat dismissive to simply say that this thing this black power politics this kind of radical politics again that you don't just it's not just black power it's also you know <clears throat> certain factions the sds and the weathermen mm -hmm. and rustin talks about this like these people aren't even addressing the income inequality right that they are a part of right That's so right. when we're stuck in this moment that pascal's talking about um it feels radical to embrace mm -hmm. what is viewed as radical right so right. then what is real <laughs> radical politics if we're kind of stuck in this almost anti-radical politics right well you know it's funny um so in 98 uh manning marable kathy cohen barbara ransby cornell west and bill fletcher no uh, no not cornell um bill fletcher and abdul al kalimat organized this thing they called the black radical congress um and uh, and some of my friends and I talked about it, but the uh, first reaction was, well, so what's a black radical, right? Uh, right what, what kind of politics does that, you know, what kind of political agenda does, does that, that betoken, right? Uh, and I went to, uh, so, pardon me, so a group of five met among themselves right, a number of times, and then they decided to have a meeting with 30 people in Chicago, and I attended that. Uh, but I said, like, uh, from 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 the very beginning, that the first time I heard anybody, because we were mainly us, right? Like, we're mainly uh, the black radical version or black '70s radical version of of, of the Wild Bunch, the Peckinpah film, right? Where this age uh, or this gang of aging desperados get to like gets together to pull off one more train robbery right that's who we were uh and i said at the time that if the first time anybody refers to us in a first person plural that presumes that we re represent some black community or, or some substantial force in, in the black community um I'm going home because I had just gotten in from a long flight from Denver and I'm tired anyway. Um, but there's that kind of posturing, right? And people become so accustomed to speaking in the name of the black masses that they don't even realize that's what they're doing. 
But as water has continued to flow underneath the bridge or Gun Hill or whatever, it becomes clearer and clearer that no matter how much red, black, and green stuff you put on it, no, 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 uh, uh, no how much kente cloth, right, or whatever, uh, no, no matter how much you go, what you have to understand, brother, is that's Bookerite politics. And, mm. and that's all it is. And it's the exact opposite, Pascal, of the Colored Farmers Alliance and, and Black labor organizing or Black people's labor organizing and popular front politics, right? Because it's a of politics course. of representation, not a politics of action. But they see- would those, They would call those Black people integrationists. Oh yeah, oh, totally, totally. But see, if, if so now, if um, Clarence Thomas, say, and the right wings, or Herschel Walker, and the right wings Negroes are basically lawn jack, uh, who are whose um, claim is that they represent some amorphous black interest out there that's unspoken. If the liberals have the same thing, right? Uh, um, if what they go to, like when Joanne Reed said in 2016. Uh, that black people aren't interested in stuff like single payer healthcare <clears throat> and a right to a job. Um, you know, black people want to reckon. Uh, well, so it's pretty clear that black people who she imagines herself speaking for when she speaks for black people, but there's also um, 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 another Bookerite aspect of this thing, which is that part of the claim is to uh, project it onto rank and file black people uh, to insist to them that that's the frame of reference or that that the that that the PMC political agenda is 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 their political agenda and is that racecraft right that makes trickle them look like something else when it's black on black uh, but my, but I guess I was, where I was going was to say that if, if the only political options that we have, or, well, if, if, if that stuff now it is, is supposed to be the radical stuff, right? The BLM and, 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 and the rest of the performances, like it's supposed to be what radicalism is, um, then, then the ruling class, it, is is control of both sides is in control of both sides as the foundation money makes makes clear well you know someone had asked someone asked a question i found it really comical it said so is adolf saying that black political interests are important what is a black political who's black corner i mean right. uh, clarence thomas is black right. Right. this is the part no. of the problem with this whole thinking clarence right. thomas is pretty black you know, because it is it, it, it imputes that black people are twelve Negroes sitting in a diner, and you can take all of them. You can basically take their opinion and decide. Well, that's the black opinion. Yep. No, that's right, man. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And and that, by the way, also is what used to be called a long time ago, racism. That that belief. No, because but, it 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 uh, the, my my big. My biggest problem 
with all of this inter internal colony, revolutionary nationalism, we are a people, we are ADOS, is that it all reduces, and you call it a booker out of the agenda, it all reduces to what I call consistently the politics of containment. Because all you oh, yeah. are doing pouring black people into a jar and the ruling class chooses the Negro to be the broker, whether he's a revolutionary guy with a dashiki and Afro and a kufi, or whether he's, you know, a member of the National Urban League, or member, or, right. or whether he says ADOS, ADOS reparations, my brother and sister, they choose the broker, and everyone else that is in the container gets the scraps from the fat back and biscuits. Yep. No, no, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and that was the Booker Wright agenda too, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's the same thing, totally. You know, so. Uh... That I mean, I, that is the to me the greatest lesson of reading what I what I tell Torrey. I call the read tradition. He was like, "Why do you call it the read tradition?" I said, "Because that's what it is, man." I said, "The the greatest lesson of the read tradition." And it was, you know, you and I have talked long enough. You know that you get a lot of contempt, particularly from our revolutionary left comrades. You know, they, oh, yeah. you know, I recently saw a piece in Black Agenda Report that were calling you out by name, saying, oh, Adolf Reed denied racism. And I've always confronted these, these charlatans who have not read your work, who have not really put in the time to understand the dedication you've had to Black politics. And I find it problematic. But I've, I've the frustration I've had with the Reed tradition. And I've, I've said to you this before, and I'm gonna bring it up, is that it's too valuable for black people to not be exposed oh, yeah. to black people. And I've yeah. said to you before is that, and this, and I, I'm saying to you as someone I have a lot of affection for, who has, I, I consider a mentor, is that I think that the, there's never been a problem with what you're saying or your scholarship. Mm -hmm. It's that it is hard for black folk who are radical, who are love, who love black people, to take critiques of their politics that are true right. when they are being spoken to white people who are left or otherwise, who they fundamentally have a history, maybe legitimately right. of distrusting. Right. Yeah, I hear you. Um, and I'll say a couple things. Uh, one is that I've gotten to a point now where I don't want to talk to anybody's radicals. Right. Uh, I, I mean, no matter what color they are, because they're all booked into the same politics. Um, so, like, I try to spend as much time as I can talking to the union workers. Uh, and, um, and, 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 and I take every opportunity to do that. And especially, to, to black trade unionists, right? Uh, but yeah, apart from that, I mean, so like this is, so when when I did the um, notorious, um, what, what are the drum saying book or essay in the, in, in the Village of Voice in 1995, right? Uh, now I had people say to me, and I, I, I'm, you know, black people with, whose politics were, uh, more or less correlated with their uh, costumes, right? Um, but would say to me, well, you know, I, I'm not objecting to the critique. Uh, I'm, I'm objecting to the fact that 
that you did it in a white publication like the Village Voice. And my response was, well, so why do you think all these other motherfuckers are writing? Excuse me. Well, you can bleep that out if you have to. Um, right? Right? I mean, where are they publishing? Um, what, what do we know about them, right? Uh, we, we know about them because they are touted in mainstream media, right? And now they're part of uh, mainstream media. So I just think that that criticism is fundamentally a dodge. I mean, I, I mean I'm familiar with it, right? Uh, I've been familiar with it for a long time. Uh, but if you can't, if your politics is such that, and, 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 and there's a difference between um, publishing stuff and right-wing publications, which I steadfastly like, resist to do, right? I, 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 even though some of them are, tend to court people they imagine to be iconoclastic leftists, right? But I don't do that. If um, you know, black publications would ask me to write something, I think I do that too. I mean, um, if 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 other black podcasts would invite me on, like, so I just did um, the kickoff keynote or, or the keynote address at the kickoff brunch for um, the for the University of New Mexico's Black History Month program, and I mentioned that because. In 2019, it had to be, or the very beginning of 2020, Toure in, invited me to do the Black History Month lecture on the Atlanta child murders at ISU. And that was the first Black History Month in, invitation I'd gotten since Ken Warren and I went to the University of Michigan around in, in, in the late 1990s, I think. So I'm not on that circuit, right? Um, and frankly, if if you're politically serious, the critique is the critique where it appears, right? Uh, and if people, and I know that there are people who who don't like the idea of um, having the black person make the critique of black politics in what they understand to be a white venue, but they operate in those white venues, then. That uh, themselves on all the time. I haven't, what well, I haven't seen the Moms Mabley Foundation giving six million dollars to Black Lives Matter or whatever, right? I mean, mm. so 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 I just think it's a dodge. I mean, I take the point, uh, but um, and 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 I want to affirm if anybody out there wants to ask me, like, like I'll be happy to do it. I'd love to do it, right? Uh, as you know, there is one. Black Nationalist podcast uh, in DC that I've been been on a few times. Actually, I was on a good one by his brother Howard. It was quite smart. I'm blocking his name right now. Uh, but but you know those people don't want to have a debate anyway. So or a real discussion even. Like I, I think debate's pretty useless, frankly. Uh, it, well, I'm going to ask. It, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. Hmm? You a, a, I'm going to ask you a. This, this might seem like a controversial question, and not to okay. not to uh, seem race reductionist, but I want to ask this question: Do you believe, as a scholar of black political history and black political thought, 
yep. that you have a particular uh, interest or I don't want to say duty, interest in mm -hmm. communicating your analysis of black political phenomenon to elements, whatever class element of people in the black community. In other words, is oh, yeah, that is important to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I did two workshops and a roundtable in August here, actually, at um, um, at the Teamsters National Black Caucus Convention, uh, and it went very well. And I've and I've done enough things with the black leadership or black advisory group uh at in 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 Atlantic city united here local i'm going down there again next month to do some other stuff yeah that's yeah that's mainly what i want to do um and i've been talking to other people in that uni too i mean that's uh because uh the response is very interesting right um and and and, and i know i've written about this but in both 2016 and 2020, when I was working in the Sanders campaign, uh, you know, groups, small groups of black people would approach me and ask me why Bernie wasn't making uh, a special appeal to people in his program. And I would say to him, well, look, let's just go down the program item by item. Uh, and you stop me when you get to the one that wouldn't, wouldn't disproportionately benefit blacks and Hispanics. And from working people, that they could see the point. And like everybody said, yeah, well, right, I can see the point. It's from the PMC who didn't want to accept that that a broadly redistributive political agenda is would would benefit black people. And and that's because they're interested only in racial or many of them, the most vocal ones of them in racial redistribution, not, not in economic redistribution. And it's back to that point where their ideal of a just world is one where all the goods and bads are distributed um, according to population share. And, and, and as great a percentage of black people are rich as, as a percentage of white people who are rich and poor as a percentage of white people who are poor. And on that point, like, um, yeah, I'm not sure, sure, sure I've quite pulled this together yet, but but this um, study that recently got the buzz in the New York Times and elsewhere about um, uh, uh, about low birth weight and and infant mortality rates, right? Mm. Uh, so I read quickly, uh, but I want to go over it again more more, more closely. A friend and colleague of mine pointed this. This out to me. I read the research of the report because I wanted to. Because I was curious. There are cross-class um, comparisons. No, no, no. Cross-race comparisons that show, for instance, that um, that rich black women are 1.25 times more likely than poor white women to have. What I think it might be infant mortality. What you have to really dig, right, um, inside the, the the report to show or, or or to find, is that rich black women 
are 1.5 times more likely. No, no, sorry. Poor black women are 1.5 times more likely than rich black women to have the problems. So there's actually a greater intraracial disparity right, mm. uh, than there is the disparity that gets hyped. Right? You know, black, rich black women for more than poor white women. Well, that's what, what makes good, good ad copy. But it's just like, like the COVID stuff, right? And the point here is more to tell us the name or the label that we need to put on, on injustice that applies to black people than it is to establish causal mechanisms or, or proposed treatment, because it comes down to um, the closest thing you get to causes that explain a racial difference are redlining and history of its effect, um, environmental racism, and uh, what's the other one? Um, oh, yeah, I mean, racism, right? Or, or racist doctors, so you need to have more black, black doctors, right? The same study shows that across the board in Sweden, right, everybody's better off than, than everybody here. And, and the differences by class that we see here don't, don't exist in Sweden. And, and it's never asked, well, why, right? Because you have a whole different care system and, and, and a different system of public provision. Uh, but, but see, this is the same stuff that happened with the Chetty study a few years ago, right? You remember which found that horror, horror of horrors, rich black people are less capable of passing on their wealth and class status intergenerationally than rich white people are. So why the hell am I supposed to be worried about that? Right? Mm -hmm. Or why should we working black person be, be concerned about that? And like one of the points, points I've been making and like in these union talks, look, more than 70% of the so-called racial wealth gap exists between the 10% of richest black people and the 10% of richest white people. And it got shit to do with you, right? Um, and, and in fact, uh, the, the least well-off, 50% of whites and, and blacks have, same, have exactly the same amount of wealth, zero. But, but that's the where wealth the, gap for whites apparently don't white people give other white people money? Isn't that how it works? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I think that's right. Uh, well, I think we all know people like that, right? Like, <laughs> when is when is when is when is Oprah sending us our check? Yeah, isn't that how it works? Right, right. When is Oprah yeah. sending us our check? But, but I mean, people respond to that too because they know it. What once you hear it, right? And the thing is. A trickle down, trickle down, uh, and I mean, it really does take witchcraft, right, to mask the fact that that giving rich black people stuff is supposed to make non-rich black people better off too, right? Um, well, the the, for, the funny thing about this, and Jason and I talked about this, and I put some stats about this. The economic growth that's happened in the post-civil rights era has happened almost exclusively amongst the black people that are in the top 20 percentile. Who and in the right. top five percentile, their income has doubled, while for the right. bottom 80 percentile, their income and wealth has stayed flat. Well, and that's why 
they have to keep shouting racial disparity, racial disparity, racial disparity, because they don't want anybody to hear what you're saying. <laughs> well, we're going to have more of this conversation in the Champagne Room. If you are a patron, the link is already up. Uh, MT, are we going to open the phone lines? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so we're going to open the phone lines. Pascal, are you ready for the phone lines to be open? Ready to rock and roll. Adolf, you have the, the champagne room link, right? All right, yep. Yeah. Did you send no, You know, uh, uh, I'll send him the right one because I had to change it. That's why we were all Send it to me, too, because I had the old one. I'm going to send you the right oh, one. Wow. I'll send you, send the right one right now. I'll send, uh, it, I'll send it to both of you guys in an email. Yeah, so right, uh, thank you guys so much. Um, if you guys are having a good chat conversation, call in and ask your questions. There's only one way to do it. Become a patron. Patreon.com slash Bitter Lake Presents. For as little as $3 a month, you can call in and be a part of these conversations. And you can see Pascal do karaoke. Can I say something? No. We are currently at 99 likes on YouTube. Could you be like 100? Could that be you? 99 likes we're so close thank you bot. So if you haven't read. if you haven't liked the show tanky bot who i believe is kevin powell from now on refer to tanky bot <laughs> as kevin powell <laughs> tanky bot said black people can't be racist and then said the most racist thing ever so tanky bot until you prove otherwise you are kevin powell in that episode of the first real world Oh, uh, yeah, black people can't be racist. Look at Pascal. Did I trigger Pascal? Man, <laughs> this is a great conversation, man. Are you ready for the champagne room, brother? Ready to rock and roll. Let's go. Thank, thank you guys so much for checking this out. Share it with your friends. And we are out. Black. That too. <laughs>